Uh, thank you, Kim, for reading. Uh, I, um, I had a cut-down version and a long version of what we're actually covering all of chapter 7 today. And I said, here's a short version, here's a long version. If you're ambitious, you read the long version. And she picked the long version. So, thank you. Uh, my name is Rich Lynn. I'm, I serve as one of the elders here. And today we're continuing, uh, continuing our series on John. And as it has been throughout, we are taking a big chunk of, of, the, uh, of the book. Today it's all of chapter 7. And there's just so much going on here. There's so much deep theology just in the words of Jesus alone. Uh, we could do many studies, many sermons, but well, we're just going gonna to go through that today. And it would be, these are, this is one of the days where it would be very helpful to have your Bible. You could uh, you know, have it in front of you so we could follow along. It's a lot of verses, so we won't put every verse up or I won't read every one, but uh, it would be helpful to, to have it in front of you. So if you were to f- try to find an overarching theme in this whole chapter, you could describe it as, well, I, I would describe it as uh, the authority of Jesus requires a response from those who encounter him. In my first year out of college, I lived in New Brunswick. Some of you may live in New Brunswick right now. So I shared a downstairs apartment in a house behind St. Peter's Hospital with three, three other guys. We're all fresh out of college. And uh, now when you decide to live in a downstairs apartment in New Brunswick, uh, you, you're kind of rolling the dice. You know, you, you have to accept that you could be going into a less than ideal situation. And so we rolled the dice and uh, we got a low number because uh, the, the two guys that lived upstairs from us were... Uh, everything you don't want uh, an upstairs neighbor to be. I, re- I remember late one evening, one of the guys upstairs, he was just hanging out on the balcony, and he was just yelling over and over outside. He's like, the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. Just yelling out the street. It probably went on for like, uh, I don't know, 10 minutes. Uh, my friend Joe, he's lived with me that time. Maybe it was 10 minutes or 15. It was a long time. It was way too long. Over and over, nothing else, just that. Uh, and, and I sat there, and I was listening. I was like, he's either super drunk or he's found Jesus in a big way. Um, and if I, if I had taken the uh, social uh, D course, uh, 201 with uh, Rachel and Tyler, like I did this past uh, couple months, I would have realized that there was a good opportunity. You know, I'd go upstairs, have a great spiritual conversation, ask some deep probing questions about, you know, what does he mean by what, what he's saying? And uh, But I didn't do that. I, I wasn't, I hadn't taken this class, right? And um, so I just kind of, you know, threw my hands up. This is kind of what you sign up for. Uh, it turns out, the, you know, I, I don't know how I found out, but it, it was a line from a, a 70s horror film that he was repeating over and over. I won't mention it. I, I haven't seen it, but that's what I was informed of. And... Um, yeah, it's kind of nuts. And so oddly enough, the reason I tell the story, as I was preparing for, for this message, uh, the story came up uh, in my head. And so I decided to title this sermon, The Power of Christ's Words Compel You. The Power of Christ's Words Compel You. Uh, when Jesus was performing miracles and healing, he was showing his authority over a physical and natural world. 
when he taught, he was described as someone who had authority, teaching as someone who had authority. He would outright tell people that their sins are forgiven, showing his authority over sin, and eventually in his death and resurrection, showing his authority over life and death. And this kind of authority that he displayed invoked a wide range of reactions from people. And we see that in this chapter. In fact, the words and actions of Jesus were, were so compelling that people had to react. They had to make a decision about what to believe about Jesus of Nazareth. And for us, for the Christian, those of us who have already made the decision to follow Jesus, we still have to make that decision uh, on, you know, daily, moment by moment. When we encounter Jesus' words, we have to decide whether to submit our lives to that authority. And so we're going to dive into the text, but uh, let's pray. Lord, I speak to, to us today through your word. Uh, there's a lot of words, and Lord, for each and every one of us here, I pray that some of these words, even just one thing, would, would move us, would change us, and, um, and, and that you would show yourself through us through uh, the passage today. Amen. So between the end of, I don't know whose coffee this is, but I'm going to move it. Okay, so between the end of uh, chapter 6 and the beginning of 7, uh, we, there's a period of time that has passed that says that Jesus went about in Galilee, uh, and he's continuing his ministry there, his teaching, healing, performing mir- miracles, and he was well known. Uh, his people looked for him, they flocked to him, they wondered what he was going to do next. In the first couple cha- uh, verses of chapter 7, it, it sets up you know, where he is, why he's there and instead of, you know, in Jerusalem. And uh, we, you know, back in chapter 5, we see that the last time he was in Jerusalem, he had ruffled some feathers uh, of the Jewish leaders. In John 15, 8, it says that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So in verse 2 also mentions that it was time of the Feast of the Booths, uh, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, The details of this feast, uh, there's a reason that it's mentioned. Now the the details are outlined in Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16. It's a seven-day festival that happens uh, on the Jewish lunar calendar around September or October. It's after the harvest. This festival was a celebrated as a thanksgiving to God for the harvest, but also to remember that God provided for the Israelites in their time in the wilderness after being freed from slavery in Egypt. And so to commemorate this, the tradition was they built these makeshift shelters outside or on the rooftops of their homes. And these are made out of wood and branches, and they slept outside uh, for the duration of the feast. It's like a week-long campout in front of your home. And some of you are like, that sounds awesome. And some of you are like, God, please no. And then in verse 3 and 4, we see an interesting interaction Jesus has with his family. 
It says that his brothers, even after seeing all that Jesus was doing, did not believe that he was the Messiah. And so we can put up uh, verse 3 and 4. It says, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, uh, which is Jerusalem, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It was common at the time during the Feast of Booths that many would would make the trip to Jerusalem to celebrate there. And uh, Jerusalem is about 90 miles from Galilee. And it's about the distance between uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, and Manhattan, New York City. And so his brothers are like, hey, you know, you're, big de- you're a big deal here in Allentown. But, it's, but this is a small, this is small time. You know, if you really want to make it big, you, you want to build a larger following, you've you got to go to New York. Right? You gotta, there's a festival. Everyone's going to be there. You'll get more followers. Uh, and Jesus responds... Uh, In verse 6, he says, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, saying this, he remained in Galilee. That seems like, seems like a very roundabout way to say I'm not going. Uh, you know, his brothers would just be like, uh, okay, next time just give me the short version. Just say you're busy. You know, so why the long answer? You know, what, what is the deeper meaning? So I'm gonna, there's a couple verses elsewhere in John that Jesus said, has, uh, words that Jesus said that may shed light on, on what he's trying to say here. Uh, John 6.38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 15.19, Jesus says, If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so in this long answer of I'm not going, Jesus is alluding to the fact that the world cannot hate his brothers because they are of the world. What they are suggesting of him is a worldly purpose and not. And Jesus' purpose is something much greater than that. His will is to do the, uh, the will of God the Father. And so his brothers wanted him, Jesus to grow his brand. They wanted him to build up a massive following by going to Jerusalem. And uh, after all, if you could do what, he, what, what Jesus has done, you, can, you want to do that in front of as many people as possible. But, uh, you know, the, but they miss the point. You know, he is building a following, but in a different way. Uh, he, he says that he's to testify against the evil ways of the world uh, and convict the world of, of the need for a savior. But also he, he, uh, he would fulfill that need through his death on the cross and redeem the world from our sins. And, th- and those are the you know, 
two no- things you notice in his response. You know, Jesus says, the reason the world hates him is because he testifies against the ways of the world. And twice he mentions that his time has not yet come. And so in saying that, in saying his time has not yet come, he's hinting at what will happen if he goes to Jerusalem. He knows that if he goes, it, it would be the road that leads to his death and to the cross. Uh, something I really uh, enjoy doing is, is coaching soccer. And uh, I'm head coach of my son's recreation team. And co- uh, recreation soccer is, is interesting. It's a unique challenge because you have multiple goals that you have to accomplish. And sometimes those goals contradict each other. So, you know, I want my team to do well and I want them to win. But I also want to teach them the game and develop them as players. And I also want to give all the players adequate playing time during the games. And this becomes more difficult when uh, you are assigned a team uh, that, has, that has players with vast uh, difference in skill level. So you have kids that have been playing for years that are really good, and then you have ki- uh, players who literally have just stepped on the field and for the first time, and they've never played the sport. And so this season... We, we had a shortage of coaches, so our, the size of our team was twice what we usually, more than twice what we usually put on the field. And so this juggling, uh, winning, and giving everyone adequate playing time has been uh, especially challenging. And so a couple weeks ago, after we lost, and I had was, you know, really been unsuccessful in juggling everybody's playing time, not everyone was unhappy, they felt like they didn't play enough, one of the players came out to me after the game, and he started to give me recommendations on how to set up the team and what the lineup should be so that we could score more goals. And so I was listening, and you know, while I appreciated his, his attitude and input and wanting to be helpful, and I was just thinking, like, son, if, if only you knew that my purpose as coach is much more than just getting the team to score more goals. And so... You know, we, we oftentimes can be like that kid on my team or, or like Jesus' brothers. You know, we're so immersed in our own lives and what we're doing, our own goals and desires, and we don't stop to think, you know, what is Jesus doing? How are my goals and desires not aligned with his? And am I willing to see and understand what he's doing, even if it contradicts what I want? You remember... Uh, what it says in Isaiah 58, uh, 55, 8 to 9. I may not have put that on there. but <laughs> uh, It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the hi- heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's continue on in verse 10 to 13. Uh, here, okay, so, so his brothers, you know, got the picture. All right, he's not going. They went ahead to Jerusalem. And we see that G- Jesus changes his mind and goes to the feast uh, covertly. Puts on a hoodie, sunglasses, you know, privately goes up to, to Jerusalem. And uh, the commentaries would say that, you know, someone said that he changed his mind because he heard from God. God wanted him to go, and so he went. Or it's possible that he had been planning on going, 
all along. He just didn't want to go with his brothers because they, he knew that they would make a big deal out of his arrival. Uh, they could, you know, potentially have drawn attention to him and pushed him into the spotlight, and that's not what he was, he was going there to do. And so uh, we, when he gets there, we get a first glimpse of why Jesus wanted to, to be discreet. In chapter 11, or not, uh, verse 11, says that the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there's much muttering about him among the people. And while some said, said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Uh, yet the, for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. We see the, the reactions of the people who are expecting him to be there. He was a hot topic of discussion and debate. You know, is he good? Is he leading people astray? Is he teaching falsehoods? And it basically boiled down to why should we listen to this? Why should we listen to Jesus? What was he doing? What was he trying to accomplish? And it was only through halfway through the festival that Jesus felt the time was right to jump back in to the public eye. And so he began to teach at the temple. And because of Jesus' authority and command of the scriptures, the Jewish leaders were amazed and began wondering how he was able to do so. In verse 15, uh, they uh, sh- describes them as, uh, you know, saying they were marveled. They marveled and said, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Uh, this is, you know, they wanted his credentials. They wanted to know how he was able to teach this way without having studied in one of their rabbinical schools. And Jesus responds by saying, in verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Uh, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus states that his teaching is straight from God, the Father. Uh, and if anyone is seeking to truly follow God, then they will be able to discern whether it's true. And the second part states that his purpose was not for his own glory, but to bring glory to God the Father who sent him. So, you know, as I was pondering the section and, and Jesus' response, I thought about how this kind of ob- objection he was getting from the Jewish leaders, it could have been, you know, it could have been easily remedied. It's... Uh, you know, as, as a small business owner, a frequent topic of discussion that I have with other business owners is how to uh, reduce as much friction as possible for a customer to buy your product or service. So this means coming up with ways to remove existing barriers and objections that customers may have in order to uh, most quickly and efficiently complete the transaction. And so as God, he could have easily just removed this barrier, right? It didn't have to be like, they didn't have to wonder what, you know, what, what, by what authority Jesus was, was teaching. Uh, he could have, he was God. He could have chosen to be born into a family with more resources and access. He could have been able to forge a path for himself into a, a rabbinical school. And after all, he was discovered as a young boy, brilliantly reasoning with other teachers in the temple. Right? He could have brought himself under uh, 
tutelage of a famous teacher and influencing the system and changing it from within. But uh, that's not what he chose to do. He didn't do that. Uh, he, he wasn't going to convince every, uh, everyone he was Messiah using worldly authority. You know, his credentials, they were straight from God himself. And he would use that authority to speak the truth so that those who are truly seeking God can find him. So we're, uh, we continue on verse 19. He continued in his response, he says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And so he's still, Jesus is still talking to the leaders here. The crowd is there, they're listening to him. And, uh, and his response is not very helpful to sway the crowd. You know, they're, they're unaware that the leaders were scheming to, to take his life behind the scenes. And in hearing this, the crowd was, they thought he was delusional. They thought he was nuts. Um, but he, he continues to speak the truth. He's not concerned about the crowd's reaction. And, uh, I mean, and they, just, they just called him demon-possessed. It's like, you have a demon. But he plows through. He's like, whatever, I'm talking. Uh, and he continues to address the leaders. And he says that, you know, he's, he references uh, what happened back in chapter 5, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. He says, I did one work and you marvel at it. And marveling is more, this is more astonishment than amazement. And, you know, last time he was in Jerusalem, he had healed a man on the Sabbath. This man had been paralyzed and sick for 38 years. And, and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders were uh, very upset about it. Uh, and in 22, Jesus continues on with this point. Uh, he says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So in, in saying this, he, uh, what, you know, what is Jesus saying? He's mentioning you know, circumcision, Sabbath, you know, what's going on? So specifically, he's talking about the requirement for all, uh, in the Mosaic law, all newborn sons, or to be circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, and so if the eighth day falls on their Sabbath, they will still do it, even though you know, they weren't supposed to do any kind of work that day. And so on the surface, you know, Jesus is challenging the Jewish leaders on their legalism. They were using their own rigid traditions that they had created rather than God's law to judge Jesus and the people in general. Uh, he's also alluding to the fact that uh, the act of uh, circumcision on the Sabbath was a contradiction. It is an apparent contradiction where you had to fulfill one part of the law and you broke another part of it. And that they, in order to reconcile that, uh, it, they they created a, hi a hierarchy. They stated that one part of the law was to take precedence over another so that the priests doing God's work would not be breaking God's law. We actually see this another time 
uh, Jesus in Matthew 12. Uh, we'll, I'll put that up. Uh, I, won't re- I won't read the whole thing, but to set it up, uh, in, in, in Matthew 12, Jesus and his disciples, it's a Sabbath, they're starving, they're very hungry, and so they're walking through a field and they, they break some grain off of, uh, they, they take some grain and, and they eat it to satisfy their hunger. And uh, I, don't, I don't know why the Pharisees were following them through a field, but they see that and they get upset that their disciples weren't following the Sabbath law. And uh, so Jesus responds by, in, chap, uh, in verse 5, go to the next part of the verse. Matthew 12, 5. It says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Uh, this just means that you know, they're doing work on the Sabbath in order to fulfill their responsibilities. Uh, and and they, you know, they're not seen as breaking God's law. And then he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, referring to himself. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So in these two verses, in Matthew and John, Jesus challenges the leaders, but at the same time, he gives us a glimpse of who he is and his heart and his heart's desire for people and his heart for us. Uh, it's a heart of mercy. Uh, Jesus' main purpose on earth was not to enforce the law, but to fulfill it. He sought to show us mercy and to redeem us from the inability to keep the law fully. So I've been reading this book. uh, It's called Gentle and Lowly, uh, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. That's by Dane Ortland. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. Um, and there's a chapter. Uh, it's called Rich in Mercy. And the author has this to say about God's abundant mercy. Uh, it's pretty long, as is the theme for today. Everything's long. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it's deeply moving, and uh, I hope you'll stick with me and follow along as, as I read it. It says, uh, perhaps looking at the evidence of your life, you do not know what to conclude except that this mercy of God in Christ has passed you up. Uh, Maybe you have been deeply mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed by the one person you should have been able to trust, abandoned, taken advantage of. Perhaps you carry a pain that will never heal till you are dead. Uh, To you, I say, the evidence of Christ's mercy toward you is not your life. The evidence of his mercy toward you is his. Mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned, eternally in your place. If God sent his own son to walk through the valley of condemnation, rejection, and hell, you can trust him as you walk through your own valleys on your way to heaven. Perhaps you have difficulty receiving the rich mercy of God in Christ, not because of what others have done to you, but because of what you've done to torpedo your life. 
maybe through one big stupid decision, or maybe through 10,000 little ones. You have squandered his mercy and you know it. To you I say, do you know what Jesus does with those who squander his mercy? He pours out more mercy. God is rich in mercy. That's the whole point. Whether we have been sinned against or have sinned ourselves into misery, the Bible says God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed, not frugal, but lavish, not poor, but rich. Amen. I pray that we all remember that, uh, that we all remember God's abundant mercy towards us. All right, 24, verse 24. Let's look back at it. Um, let me turn back here. So I don't know. I, when I walked in, if you noticed, I don't think you did. But this is a woman's study Bible. Uh, I used it to prep. This is my wife's Bible. Um, so I, I thought I'd use it because I'm used to it. Another thing I wondered is, like, what makes it a women's study Bible? Because everything I've read in it has been very relevant to me. <laughs> so I don't know what makes it. I think it's the, just the, the, the decoration of it. You know, it's not decorated like a bachelor pad. I think, I think that's it. Everything else is, is fantastic. So anyway, uh, the t- verse 24 So Jesus concludes this, uh, this interaction with the leaders here by giving an imperative. You know, it says, judge with right judgment, not by mere appearances. So, so artificial intelligence has been a, a big topic recently, and so just to be transparent, I did not ask AI to write this for me. But I was curious about what it would say about this verse. You know, considering how often it's taken out of context and misrepresented. So I went on to uh, the Bing, Microsoft has an AI chat bot. And I asked, you know, I asked it, what, what did Jesus mean in, in this verse? A, a judge with right judgment. <laughs> uh, and so this is, this, is what, uh, this is what it said. Uh, so the, the robot said, Jesus was not saying that we should never judge anything or anyone, but that we should judge with right judgment, meaning with wisdom, discernment, humility, and love. We should judge according to God's word and will, not according to our own opinions, preferences, or prejudices. We should judge ourselves first before we judge others, Matthew 7, 1 to 5. We should judge with the aim of restoring and edifying others, not condemning or criticizing them, Galatians 6, 1 to 2. We should judge with grace and mercy, not with harshness or self-righteousness. James 2, 12 to 13. That's pretty good, right? I was amazed. Uh, Can God challenge us through a robot? Yes, he can. So as I ponder this rather extensive list of qualifications of proper judgment, I realize that uh, we can really only do this right ourselves, if we ourselves experience and know the overflowing mercy that God has for us. You know, we have to understand that Jesus' purpose was to restore and edify us with grace and mercy, you know, not with harshness or self-righteousness. And only then are we able to, uh, as verse 24 says, judge with right judgment. 
let's uh, go back here or continue on to verse 26. From 26 to 31, how are we doing on time here? All right. Okay, so here again, we focus, uh, the focus switches over to the reaction of the people. It's a combination of skepticism and amazement all at the same time. And now, so now the new topic of discussion about Jesus is his origins. Uh, the belief at the time was that the Messiah would not be known or identified as the Messiah until he appeared to redeem Israel. It's similar to last week uh, where we see people questioning you know, you know, they, whether Jesus was the Messiah because they all knew who he was. They knew who, who, he, you know, who his family is. They knew where he was from. His hometown was Nazareth. And so, yeah, they're questioning his origins. And that doesn't, didn't match up with what they were expecting. And so, once again, uh, in his response, Jesus does not attempt to defend himself or correct the people. And after all, he, they were incorrect. He was born in Bethlehem. You know, that's where the Messiah was supposed to be from. But instead of defending himself and correcting them, he emphasizes that his human origins are not as important as his spiritual origin. And he says, he who sent me is true, saying that the one true God, the Father, sent him. And at this point, in verse 30 to 31, we see that the response of the Pharisees, they've had enough. They hear the people talking, they need to put a stop to this, and so they sent the temple guard to arrest Jesus. Uh, and Jesus responds to those trying to arrest him. Uh, it says, uh, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Uh, his response is that he's really good at hide and seek. Um, no, that's like, I imagine him saying, you will seek me, but you will not find me. That's what I say to my kids when I, when I play hide and seek. Uh, no, no, he, he, his response, I think, it's, it's funny. It's, he's purposefully saying something that would confound the guards, right, I think. Uh, and it was a way to avoid arrest, but also I think for our benefit, for, for us reading these words later, and it's obvious that Jesus was referring to his death uh, and his resurrection and ascending to be with God the Father. And once again, uh, as in many parts of John, he spoke on a, a spiritual level uh, while those who doubt him continue to process his words on, on a physical human level. All right, we're, we're getting towards the end here. Uh, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in the following verse, John actually gives a commentary on his own writing. You know, Jesus here is talking about the Holy Spirit. So he proclaims this to the crowd. He just stands up. It's the last day. Everyone's gathered. And just is like, you know, things a glass, stands up on a chair, whatever. Proclaims it to everybody. Uh, you know, invites them to come. 
And uh, it's very, you'll notice that this is very similar to another earlier part in John. Uh, it's a very, the similar words. Anybody remember when he said something similar, who it was? Women at the well, yes. Uh, is it, oh, and he was, that time he was talking to one person, this time he's talking to a crowd. You know, to the woman at the well, he says, you know, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so he's repeating the same thing. This time, it's an open invitation to all. And it sounds... Uh, and in this invitation, it sounds very similar to uh, the Old Testament passage in Isaiah 55, 1. It's an invitation to those who have a deep spiritual longing to come to God. And it says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And so Jesus not only invites, uh, but he also proclaims that he himself is the source of the satisfaction. But wait, there's more. It's like a late night infomercial. Call the next 10 minutes, we'll double your order. Uh, he continues by saying, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So in the Greek, this word li literally translates as out from his belly. So out of from his belly will flow rivers of living water, which is meant to express the concept of from the innermost core of your person. And this reminded me of, of a belly laugh, right? There's a laugh that you have when you find something funny or amusing, but then there are certain times where, it's, where something resonates with you uh, so deeply in a hilarious way. It's like the laugh changes, right? It comes from inside. Uh, my, my son has a laugh like that where I don't even have to be in the same room. Like if I hear it, I know, I know that he has either seen or, or uh, heard something that, that's really funny. And I thought I, I would try to imitate it, but I can't. If I do, it just will sound weird. It's, it's, like, it's like authentic, it's genuine. And, and Jesus is saying, when you, when you come to him, out of your heart, out of the deepest, innermost parts of you, can flow rivers of living water. There's an outflow of the Spirit of God. You'll also notice that Jesus says... Uh, as the scripture has said. Um, I tried to find what Jesus is quoting here. Uh, there's actually not a line like that in the Old Testament. Uh, and it seems as if Jesus is not quoting a, a particular scripture, but is referring to a recur recurring theme uh, present or presenting a summary of a lot of uh, multiple Old Testament concepts. And so one concept is, a water being a metaphor for God's spirit. Uh, that appears several times in the Old Testament. Uh, and Jesus could uh, also be referencing a passage we see in uh, Ezekiel 47. 
And this passage describes a beautiful vision of a river flowing through for, from the temple of God. Uh, for the sake of time, we won't read the whole thing, but uh, what we will read is, uh, I think it gives this passage and Jesus' words a little more depth. All right, so this uh, starts out uh, before these verses here. Uh, we don't have to pull it up, but uh, it starts out, Ezekiel describes a vision where God shows him the front doors of the temple. Right? He sees uh, from the f- underneath the front doors of, of the threshold a little bit of water, a small trickle, and God leads him along this flow of water. And as he goes uh, away from the temple, this water flow increases. It's described as getting deeper, first to the knees, and then they keep going, it gets waist deep, and then he keeps going and going, and uh, it becomes deep enough to swim in, and eventually it becomes a flowing river that cannot be passed through. And so here we start in verse 6. Uh, in Ezekiel 47, 6, And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river many trees, on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many, uh, very many fish, for this water goes there. That the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And we skip to verse 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water from, for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This, uh, I, I found this to be such a profound picture. Uh, and that Jesus references this. You know, it starts, you know, from the temple, it starts a small trickle of water. You know, it's not a normal source where you expect water to flow from. And the trickle of water grows into a mighty flowing river. And the result of it is that it brings renewal, and it brings life, and it brings healing. In John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. Jesus is a source of true satisfaction. And when we go to that source, he gives us his spirit. And that source of satisfaction, life and renewal and peace flows out from our innermost being. And so that's a promise. You know, if you feel spiritually dead, if you feel like you're always turning to the external, physical things of the world to feel satisfied and are left feeling empty, if you feel guilt or shame because of your sin and you feel like you can never live up to the way God has called you to live, you're tired and exhausted, 
feel like you have nothing left to give to the people around you, Jesus says, come to me. Jesus says, believe in him, and he will give you his spirit, and you will be satisfied. Jesus says, believe in him, and he will give you his spirit, and you will experience unending mercy. Jesus says, if you are suffering and hurting, believe in him, and his spirit will flow out of your innermost being and bring life, healing, and renewal. And so, how, how can we do this? I think to start, uh, it's simple prayer. You know, I'm, I'm going to, uh, we'll put up, put up an old, this is an old prayer, it's from 1549. It's just really, it's a really a bl- blueprint of how we can pray and submit to Jesus' authority and invite the Spirit to work in us. Uh, there's, there's many prayers like this. But uh, this is kind of just to give you a general idea. It's called, Send Your Holy Spirit to Rule and Govern Us. Let's pray. Uh, And as you read, you can pray it uh, on your own. It says, O Lord Jesus Christ, Almighty Son of God, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts through your word, that he may rule and govern us according to your will. Comfort us in every temptation and misfortune and defend us by your truth against every error, so that we may continue steadfast in the faith, increase in love in all good works, and firmly trust in your grace, which through death you have purchased for us, and at last obtain eternal salvation. You reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. And so, for the rest of chapter 7, uh, we won't read it, but uh, we we uh, you observe the reaction of the people to Jesus' words. You know, the people continue to debate whether Jesus is the Christ or not, and it actually includes a cameo from our favorite Pharisee, as uh, our pastoral resident Jalen Baker fondly called Nico, and Nico makes an appearance, and. And we see that when, when the people heard his, Jesus, all these words, all, all these responses, and uh, they had to make a decision. Were they going to believe or were they going to be skeptical? And so in the same way, the words of Jesus compel us to make a moment-by-moment decision. Will we believe in his words and submit to his authority over our lives? And so... As we end today and we come to the communion, uh, and I ask the worship band to come up, and this is a perfect time to ask for the Holy Spirit to move uh, in your heart. Uh, maybe you don't know what to pray right now, so uh, you know I can leave. We can leave that prayer up briefly. If you want to just read it again, and you can just read it as as a prayer to God. Uh, you know, as we. Before we come to the table, this is also a time to confess sin, to uh, ask God to, God to convict us of all the ways uh, that you know, we want to live life on our own and not how he wants. Or uh, we can confess the ways that we've hurt or wronged others. And also we remember the abundant mercy and forgiveness that you have through Jesus. And so we have two lines, bread, 
uh, wine and juice, and you can line come up, come forward when you're ready. Uh, you could take the bread and, and dip it in the bowl. Uh, there are gluten-free options here, and so take some time to pray, meditate, and and come up when you're ready.